Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Unexpected King, which was taught to help us celebrate Advent in 2022. In this series, we consider several unexpected characteristics of the coming King, as seen in Zechariah 9.9. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So um, we are going to be beginning a four-week series here for Advent that will run until December the 18th and then actually on Christmas Eve. And this year we're, we're doing what we're referring to as the unexpected King. And you can kind of notice there we've bracketed the word un-off because as we're going to see throughout this series, the people of Israel had many expectations regarding the coming of Messiah. It was not that the coming of a Messiah was not expected, but the way in which Jesus came was very unexpected. It was there, it had been prophesied from the earliest days, but they had missed certain aspects. And so we're going to be taking a look at that over the next four weeks. And each week we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. There's three different aspects of who Jesus is that we'll be highlighting and then kind of wrapping it all up on the 18th and on Christmas Eve, talking about the the full picture uh, together and our response to it. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It'll be up here on the screen in your booklets, and you can follow along in your Bible. Hear now the word of our king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Many years ago, uh, there was an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, and Luther would have looked at a text like we just read and had a problem with it, because the text tells us that there is a righteous king who is going to come, that the the Messiah who's going to come is righteous uh, because God is righteous, and therefore we should rejoice. But Luther struggled with this. In fact, in his own words, he wrote in a comment, uh, he wrote regarding his study of the book of Romans. Uh, Luther wrote this I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter one the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, righteousness of God which by the use and custom of all my teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active righteousness, as they call it. In other words, that righteousness by which God is righteous and by which he punishes sinners and the unrighteous. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction, I did not love, no, rather I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? 
Why does God keep sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his righteousness and his wrath? And this is how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. See, Luther says there, though, and he learns that I could outmonk all the monks. I was the most rigorous of all the monks, but I have a problem. I recognize my sin. And therefore, when you tell me that the king who is coming is righteous, rather than rejoicing and shouting with joy, I begin to weep and wail and moan for how can God's righteousness be good news or a cause for joy because I'm a sinner. So that's part of what we're going to talk about today because Luther was very much like the Jews. There was an expected way that he thought what it would mean that the king came was a righteous king. But when he discovered the unexpected nature of that, it changed everything in Luther's life. It actually changed all of uh, Western civilization's history from Luther's discovering, rediscovery of what that means because it's the heart of the gospel. So let's dive into Zechariah 9.9. Now notice beginning we're, we're told to rejoice because a king is coming. In Zechariah 9.9, uh, he begins with this parallelism, which is the way they love to express things in Hebrew. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. So notice that there's a parallelism. You rejoice and you shout. And it's speaking not of two different people, but the same group of people, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. God's people is who this is referencing, and they're being told to rejoice greatly. Now, Zechariah is prophesying at the end of the exile, but everything seems to be in shambles for Israel. So there's a struggle. Why would we be rejoicing? And in fact, this is not even just a lone call at this point in the book. It's kind of a theme throughout Zechariah. So for example, at the beginning of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10, God gives the exact same command. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you. So notice it's the same thing. He's speaking to the daughter of Zion. He's telling him to shout and be glad. And the reason is that I am coming. In Zechariah 9, it's I'm coming in the form of the king, the messianic king, but I'm going to come. And so God's saying, look, as my people... You have every reason to rejoice no matter the circumstances because you're the people of God. And God specifies further that they should rejoice because the king is coming. So notice again in Zechariah 9.9, he says, I want you to rejoice because see, your king comes to you. And then he's going to describe who the king is. Now, the reason that this should be a cause for joy for the struggling people of God is because The promised Messiah, the son of David, the Davidic king, is going to come. God is saying, I haven't forgotten my promises. I know the exile has come. I know you got sent away. I know you're back in the promised land now, and you're trying to rebuild the temple, but even that temple is making you weep because it's not glorious like the temple under Solomon. Everything seems to be struggling, but God is here telling them, I have not forgotten my promise. The king is going to come. And in fact, 
the promise of a king to come was a key theme in the Old Testament. We can look at it from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 forward, actually. But we'll just look particularly in the prophet Isaiah here for a moment. This is a very familiar verse for us around this time of year. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, notice what Isaiah said. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We sang some of this in one of our songs this morning, actually, that given the titles and names of God. And notice he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So notice, first off, all the governmental terms. Zechariah is saying a king is coming. Well, Isaiah here in one of the earlier prophecies in the prophets before the time of exile is saying the same thing. Notice you've got government. Uh, can you go back for just a second? You got government uh, in verse 6. He's the prince. In verse 7, is referring to the increase of his government. Uh, it refers to reigning on David's throne and over his kingdom. So notice all of these are governmental terms that are being used here in Isaiah. And in fact, this theme isn't just in Isaiah 9. This is probably the most famous passage that we think of at this time of year. But it's a theme that runs throughout the book of Isaiah. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5, Isaiah is trying to encourage the people. And he says this, In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. So notice, we have again a throne, which means that there's a king, and the king comes from the house of David, and the king is righteous. Okay, same exact themes as in Zechariah. Furthermore, in, Isaiah, uh, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet who prophesies actually at the time of the exile. Jeremiah put it this way, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David, notice here again David, a righteous branch, we're going to see that term used many times, that he's a branch out of David, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which you will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so notice again, we have a king. He is from the house of David, and we're dealing with righteousness. In fact, this king's name is going to be in the Hebrew, uh, Yahweh Sidkenu or Adonai Sidkenu, uh, which is the Lord our righteousness. There's a number of times that God has given a name like this, the, uh, the Lord our provider. You may remember the old song, Jehovah Jireh, which mispronounces both words, by the way. But um, Yahweh Yireh is the Lord our provider. Here it is the Lord our righteousness. So we have this king who's going to come from David and he's going to rule in righteousness. This was a theme over and over again in the prophets. And always the Lord says the people of God should have joy no matter their circumstances because God's going to fulfill all of his promises regarding the Davidic Messiah. So what was Luther's problem? Did the guy just need to take some Prozac or something? Okay? God says this should be a cause for joy. Why was it not for Luther? And why is Luther actually correct that it wouldn't be a cause for us if we didn't understand the full thing? Well, that's related to the fact that this king is coming, but he really is a righteous king. 
So notice in Zechariah 9.9, your king comes to you, and the very first thing we're told about the king is he is righteous. Next week, Tony will be talking about having salvation, then Bobby's going to talk about gentle and riding on a donkey, his humility. But notice the very first thing is he is a righteous king. And if you notice, we saw that in every one of the prophecies we just looked at regularly in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah 16, 5, Jeremiah 23, and all of those, there's a king coming from the house of David, but he is going to be a righteous king. So what does it mean that he's a righteous king? Well, there's actually three parts, and the first two are why Luther wrestled. Number one is the king is righteous in his personal character. And this is the obvious first meaning. When you read and say, hey, a king's coming and he's righteous, the first thing that comes to mind is that means his personal character is that he is righteous. And it makes sense because if he's not righteous, he can't do the next two things we're going to talk about, okay? You can't, the next one's going to be reigning righteously. Well, you can't reign righteously if you're personally corrupt. You know, Tony Soprano running the mafia can't be a righteous ruler because he's a corrupt person. And so we're told first off that this king is going to be righteous. Now, this is a great reason to rejoice if you're the people of God because what was one of the biggest problems that Israel and Judah had had? What was the nature of their leaders? Judas were up and down, right? But, but they all had problems. And in Israel, they were all wicked kings. And we see when we read the history, as went the king, so went the people. When there would be a king who tried to follow the Lord, there would be times of revival and things would go better. But then there would inevitably be these other kings that were so wicked and so evil until it got so bad in the time of Manasseh that the Lord just said, look, there's, there's no recovery from this. You're going to go into exile because it says that Manasseh made blood run in the streets of Jerusalem from all of the corruption and killing. So this is good news for the people of God. You're going to have a king, but he's not going to be like the kings you had before. He's going to be a good king, a righteous king. And as God's king, the Messiah would be perfectly righteous in his character. So that's the first aspect. The second one, and this is where Luther really started to have his problem. The second one is, if the king is righteous, he's going to rule righteously, establishing justice and judging sin. And that's the problem. Because a righteous king has to actually rule righteously, which means injustice and wickedness must be punished. By definition, if you do not punish wickedness, you are not judging righteously. It doesn't matter how much you like people, whatever else you say. If you are not judging evil and wickedness, you are not uh, ruling righteously. And so this king is um, a righteous king, and so righteousness has to characterize his rule. And this is spoken over and over again in the prophets as well. So I'll give a couple of passages from Isaiah, or actually three. Two of these are different than what we've seen before, but they're all about this coming king. So in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we read, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Remember, we've seen that phrase a couple of times, and this is where it originally started. Out of Jesse's stump, which has been cut down, there's going to be a, a branch popping up, and this is going to be the king. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. 
the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And notice here, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So this king is going to be righteous and he's going to establish righteousness by punishing the wicked. And here's where Luther starts to say, oh my. I have Because what's my problem? I've looked in the mirror for the wicked, and who do I see? And if you don't see yourself, you're lying or you're deceived. See, this is the problem. Notice this continues on in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 5. In love a throne will be established, in faithfulness a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. But if he seeks justice, what does that mean he has to do with injustice and unrighteousness? He must judge it. He must judge it. Oh my. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. We read part of this in our uh, Advent candle lighting this morning. Here is my servant whom I have hold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. See, but Luther would say, but how? How can I put my hope in his law? All his law does is condemn me because I'm out monking all the monks. I'm better than every other guy around here. I, I live righteously, rigorously. All the other monks make fun of me for doing this, and then I spend more time in confession than any of them. But at the end of the day, I still look at the law of God, and what do I see about myself? I'm sinful. I'm wicked. How can it possibly be good news if the king is going to judge wickedness? What about my wickedness? See, it's, it's comforting to want to read that passage and say, yeah, Jesus, come get them. Slay the wicked. Until I realize I are the wicked. Then it's not so comforting. Lord, don't slay the wicked. Okay, but he's a righteous king. And he's going to come and he's going to establish righteousness. So here is Luther's problem. How can we rejoice if the king judges and slays the wicked? Where does that leave me in my sin? He's righteous, so we can't just forget about it. He rules in righteousness. He establishes righteousness, which means he is going to judge sin. And that's where Luther was stuck. But thanks be to God, there's a third way this king is righteous. And the prophets reveal this, but it got missed by the people of Israel. And it has been missed throughout much of human history. And that is that the king is not only righteous in his character and actions, he also gives his righteousness to us. He gives righteousness so that people are spared from judgment. Zechariah had already had a vision of this earlier in the book. In Zechariah chapter 3 
and, and I'll tell you what's happening before verses 8 and 9, which we'll read in a minute. Zechariah has a vision, and there's Joshua, the high priest, standing there, and he is covered in filthy garments. Because even though Israel has gone off into exile, even though they are now restored to the promised land, here's the problem. The high priest himself is covered in sin. And what's going to happen? And Satan stands there accusing the high priest in this vision. And he says, look at him. He is a sinner. And what can Joshua say in response? Nothing. He's right. I am a sinner. And he's covered in this. But then we read in verse 8 and 9, because what actually happens is the Lord says, or Zechariah even cries out, uh, you know, put a clean turn on him. The Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, and he takes the dirty clothes off of Joshua and he puts clean clothes on him. What a picture of redemption. And here's how it concludes in verses 8 and 9. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and you associates seated before you, men who are symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. That's how we, we keep coming back to that. So this Davidic branch is going to come. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. So notice what Zechariah says here. It's funny, I remember talking with Rob Tashoff years ago when Rob had come to the Lord. This was his bar mitzvah passage that he had read when he was young. And as he was now a believer, he said, I don't know how I miss this. It's like the shouting the gospel right there, but somehow I missed it right in front of me. But see, that's because it's unexpected for us. It's so unexpected that when the king comes, people missed him. It's so unexpected that even after he has come and the church has been established, 1,500 years later, a monk can be slaving away in his cell and saying, what do I do with my sin before a righteous God? But see, the Davidic uh, king, the Messiah, comes and the sin of the land is removed in a single day because the king is not only righteous, he removes our sin. And he does it once and for all. But see, this is what was missed. This is what was unexpected. Everybody expected he would be righteous and everybody expected he was going to be righteous in the way he ruled. What they didn't deal with was, what about my sin? And they missed that. See, and what we tend to do at that point is, well, mine's not that bad. I mean, I'm not Hitler. Is that not what we say? See, but here's, here, here's the reality. Yeah, you are. You've committed cosmic treason. Every one of us have. We, we have not dealt with our sin. We don't want to recognize. We want to be Joshua, the high priest, standing there and saying, my, my clothes look pretty good. When the Lord's saying, no, they're not. They're filthy. They are filthy. So notice he does this. Jeremiah goes on and even adds something else to it. I want you to notice in that verse we looked at a couple minutes ago, Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, the days of this coming king, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our 
righteousness. Not the Lord is righteous, which you could have said, but the Lord is who? Our righteousness. Do you see what Jeremiah is saying here? The king is not only righteous in himself, he is our righteousness. How can I be righteous? I'm going to have to be righteous in him. See, but this is what was missed by so many. It was unexpected. It appeared that when the Messiah comes, he's going to deal with those bad Romans. He's going to get all those other wicked people because, of course, I'm okay. See, that you remember Jesus told the parable, you know, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. And the tax collector won't even look up to heaven and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And which one does Jesus say is right? The second. The second. See, and Luther is saying, what I'm being told is to act like the Pharisee. Say, I'm a monk. I'm doing all my stuff. I'm good enough. No, you're not. And he knew he was not good enough. That was not the gospel. The gospel was that God will have mercy. He will remove our sin in a single day, and he will give his righteousness to us. And this was what was so unexpected, and it was the solution that finally came to Luther, and he finally came to understand it. And this is actually, again, remember Luther mentioned Romans, this is how Paul says the gospel is in the book of Romans. It's there clearly. Romans 1.17, which is where Luther is reading and wrestling. In verse 16, we've been told that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And then Paul says in verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now notice the NIV has translated the Greek here, a righteousness from God, which is actually correct, and I'll explain why in a minute. But when you read it literally in the Greek, it is the righteousness of God. And so Luther is struggling with that because what he's thinking is when he reads the righteousness of God, he's thinking about how God is righteous in himself. He says, that's what I was always taught to do. But Luther came to see finally, and it's what the NIV is trying to to get at here, that since this is a righteousness that is by faith, it's not talking about how God is righteous, but rather how God makes the sinner righteous. So it is actually a righteousness that comes from God. In the gospel, we are reminded that how can I have confidence? How can I have joy that the righteous king has come? Because the Lord is my righteousness. Not because I've measured up, not because I'm good and everybody else is wicked, but rather because I embrace Christ. And notice here in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by what? faith from first to last. See, this was the struggle. No, what it's going to be is you do a little bit. You do your part, and Jesus will kind of add on and make up the mess. No. No. See, it doesn't work that way. I I was thinking about this this morning. I I loved the movie years ago, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and there's all this kung fu in the movie, and there's this funny scene where one guy's trying to help the kung fu master, and his help is constantly getting in the way. That's all he's doing. I mean, it's, it's there for comic effect. The master can take care of everything, but this guy is constantly running into the battle, and all he's doing is the master's now having to protect him and keep him out of the way. That's you and I adding your best moment to Jesus. You're just getting in the way. Paul would say, just stop. You're hurting yourself, okay? 
It doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't need our help. So it is by faith, not by works. My works don't have anything to do with it. It's not something we work for or create. Uh, it is God's righteousness that is given to us in Christ and is received by faith and not by works. And so Luther goes on and says, here's when this came to him. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the righteous person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God, that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, but it's a passive righteousness. In other words, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous person lives by faith. Now picture this, Luther, the monk, who has a doctorate in theology, is understanding this for the first time. And he says this, all at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the righteousness of God. With as much love as before, I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. What I had hated, hated, was the sweetest thing in the world to me now. Because I now understood that the righteous king was not here to judge my sin, but to give his righteousness to me. And I didn't have to measure up. I didn't have to outmonk all my compatriots. I simply received it with open hands through faith. And this is explicit in the New Testament over and over again. And it amazes me how it gets forgotten, but this is so unexpected to us. We're like the Jews of old. This runs so against our nature, we have to be reminded over and over again. Notice in Philippians 3, 9, Paul is speaking about Everything that I had that I counted as righteousness, and he's gone through like Luther the monk and said, hey, I out-excelled all of the other Pharisees. I was the best. I was the bee's knees when it came to human righteousness. And he said, but I've counted all of that as dung. And that's the nice translation. Okay? I chunked that on the pile out back. Because all I wanted was Christ. And he said, and here's what I want. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And in this passage, the Greek is explicit. It's not just the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that comes from God. God. It uses a different preposition. It is very clear. God gives righteousness. And Paul says, that's what I want. So all the righteousness I had that everybody tells me to take up and show God, and I can stand there, I throw all that on the dung heap because it doesn't matter at all. I need perfect righteousness, which I've never had, but it's God's gift to me in Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice, so not so that in him I might become a little more righteous. No, he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness, which is the very righteousness of God. See, here's the unexpected part, and here's what turned everything around for Luther and what we need to remind ourselves of daily. Because your propensity and mine is to try and outmonk everybody. We go back to the law. We'll never be saved that way. The good news is what God is in his character and what he demands in his law and his rule, he gives to us. It's a gift. So it's very appropriate that here in Advent we all get ready and on Christmas morning, what do we do? We give a gift, right? In our culture, probably far too many gifts. But we, we, we do all of that, right? And, and I, I don't deserve whatever gift I get. It's freely given to me. And that is a remembrance of exactly why this king comes and why we celebrate it. Friends, this is is the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so unexpected to us. So how do we apply this? What does it mean? First question, have I wrestled with the righteousness of God in my sin? I made the joke earlier, but I've heard people say this. Luther needed Prozac. The dude needed to chill out. Okay, he needed to understand God grades on the curve. And he's doing better than most people. Again, he was no Hitler. He was no Ivan the Terrible. He was, he was laboring and working pretty hard. And we think that God's righteousness and our sin are not a real problem. Luther doesn't need to take Prozac. He doesn't need to chill. We need to wake up. He's absolutely right. It is a real problem. And the solution is not found in whistling as we walk by and just hoping God won't notice all of the dirty clothes we're standing there in front of him in. Hoping that he won't notice, as Isaiah said, all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. That's our righteousness much less my sin, okay? So the solution is not saying Luther was wrong. It's me recognizing God is utterly holy and he is utterly righteous and he will establish righteousness on the earth and judge sin and he will judge sinners because sin is destructive. To not do that is to wish for the utter undoing of the entire cosmos because that's the nature of sin. So we have to recognize that. Has that sunk deep into my heart? Have I really wrestled through that? Have I ever despaired when I consider my own sin and the coming judgment of God? Or as was very common in Luther's day, and is very common today. I mean, I'm an American. We're basically good people, right? 
I mean, isn't that what we say? I remember years ago, I was just talking with somebody about this. Ross Perot had come to the Naval Academy to speak, and it was a really good lecture. It was about my plebe year was when the hostages were taken in Iran. That shows how long ago my plebe year was. Okay, but we were counting down, and if you remember, America had tried to go in and get the hostages, and it was a fiasco, and the, the helicopters had crashed and burned, and we lost more servicemen trying to get in everything else. Meanwhile, Ross Perot with his company EDS, which was full of all these former Navy SEALs and, you know, Army recon guys and everything, he sent a team in and got his people out. And he came and he told us the story of it. But in it... He basically said, look, I love being an American because Americans are good people. We're just good. So the next day we were talking about it at lunch, and I said what I thought was not a controversial statement. When somebody asked me about it, I said, yeah, well, that part about Americans being basically good people is a crock. We're not basically good. (laughs) Oh, I might as well jump up and punch somebody's mama in the face or something. I mean, man, the whole table erupted, and everybody was upset with me. And I was like, what in the world? And I wrote, oh, no, see, they had bought into the gospel of God grading on the curve, and we're basically good people. And I'm sitting there looking at them like, are you kidding me, dude? I've lived in the room with you before. I know you're not basically good. You're whacked. So am I. Okay, but see, that's the way we think our way through this problem. But see, that's just hoping that the problem goes away. It's me standing there saying, well, I'm kind of mucky, but this person looks worse than me. This will be okay. I'm going to pass the inspection. See, well, when I did inspections at the Naval Academy, it was never good enough to stand next to the guy whose uniform looked worse because they were judging my uniform, not relative to the guy next to me, relative to what it was supposed to be. That's the way judgment works. And so have I ever wrestled with that? There can be no salvation apart from realizing my own sin Which is why when Paul begins the gospel, the very next verse, after that glorious thing we just read, that Luther said is so sweet that the just will live by faith. What's the very next phrase? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men in their sin. (laughs) Very next phrase. Those two things are not divorced from one another. God is the righteous king. He is going to judge. Have I ever recognized that? If you are here today or you are listening and you have never responded that way to the gospel, setting aside your righteousness, your works, your hope, anything you bring to say, my only hope is Jesus Christ. My only hope is his righteousness given to me. If you've never done that, I encourage you, let the Holy Spirit convict you of sin and receive Christ, simply by faith. Secondly, second question, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Do I rejoice over the unexpected gospel? I've taken time this morning to try and unpack this. See, it's so familiar to us. Oh, we sing, we sing Christmas carols, you know. We had, if you you remember the the movie uh, Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, you know, and I like sweet baby Jesus, right? I like baby Jesus. That's the Jesus I like. We get so familiar with all this, we forget the astounding nature of this good news. And so we don't understand what Luther was all hung up about, but he was seeing much more clearly 
than we are. And when we see this, here's the good news. When we wrestle through that and we come to understand, then like Luther said, it's like being born again. It is being born again. It is. We've come into paradise. Everything has changed. See, and this is why God says rejoice, sing, shout. The king is coming, and he is righteous. He is going to establish righteousness, and don't worry, he will give his righteousness to his people. That is good, glorious news. What an unexpected wonder. Our king has come. He has taken our sin and removed it in a single day. And at the same time, gives perfect righteousness. I'm standing in the line, dreading the coming inspection, knowing I am not ready, and suddenly the judge touches me and everything is immaculate. That is the gospel. That is cause to celebrate. And brothers and sisters, if we can't celebrate over that, we are stone cold dead. This is the best of all possible news. And so we're going to conclude by coming down to the Lord's table. And I can't think of any way that is better to, to go through the unexpected nature of what we're doing right here. We come to the Lord's table each and every week. And as a reminder, if you did not grab one of the packets, please make sure you do so. But once again, we come and we forget the unexpected nature of what we're getting to do here. You are being invited to the king's table to eat and drink. Now, as a reminder, I'm going to read Psalm 15 to what this means for us and to think of what's actually happening here at the table. In Psalm 15, we read, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. So if you came to the Lord's house and I said, here's the entrance price, and I read that, who gets to come in? Much less, that's just to get into the house. What about come to the table and eat and drink from the king's hand? But here's the marvelous thing. In Christ, that's exactly what we get to do. Because Jesus did that for me. He is utterly blameless. He 
never cast a slur. He never lied. He kept his covenant oath even at the price of death. And so I, who have cast slurs, I who have lied, I who have broken my word and brought into the king's house and seated at the king's table because the Lord is my righteousness. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to this table to celebrate the gift that God has given to us. For I received from the Lord that which I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are here today, you are welcome at this table with us. You do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church, for this is the Lord's table. But you do have to be a believer in Jesus, and that very simply means you are trusting nothing other than the work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. You have no hope in anything you have ever done, not how much you prayed, not that you got baptized, not that you did this, that, or the other. Your only hope is Jesus Christ's righteousness. If that is true of you, we invite you to join with us. If it's not, then you should not join into the meal because this meal is a declaration that that's exactly what I believe, that my hope of salvation is broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and you can take the bread from the packet and we will be ready to take it in just a moment. Father, you are holy and any who would ascend your hill and come into your house and sit at your table must be holy and blameless as well. But Lord, we confess that we are sinful in thought, word, and deed, and unable to come before you covered with our sin. But Lord, we rejoice today for our righteous King has done this in our place. He is blameless and righteous, always speaking the truth, always hating uh, evil and loving the good, and keeping his covenant even unto death. And Lord, we are astonished that he has done this to give his righteousness to us. How marvelous and unexpected is this gift. Therefore, through Jesus, our righteous King, we come to your table now in confidence and faith to be fed by our King. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the King of righteousness. And though we were but rebels, spurning your just rule, committing treason against you, you died for us. And through your death, your shed blood, we are forgiven and restored as your people. How marvelous 
and unexpected is this gift. Therefore, through your blood, we come to your table now in confidence and faith to drink from the cup of the King. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and conclude with prayer and a benediction. O Spirit of God, you are the Holy Spirit. And though we do not deserve it, you have come to dwell in us, applying to us the righteousness of Christ, so that we are now saints, God's holy people. Our triune God, we give you thanks for this unexpected salvation. We are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, set apart to salvation by the Spirit. So we pray, fill us now so that we might go forth in full gratitude, empowered to live lives worthy of the gospel and to boldly tell others this unexpected good news. Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayer and that you would do all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our great, righteous King. And God's people say, amen. Now I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. Today's benediction is going to come out of the book of Zephaniah. Another one of these small prophets, but I encourage you to hear the blessing that God offers to us as his people. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again do you need to fear any harm. For the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth full of joy and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.